0: We're continuing through our journey through Acts and this morning we've come to Acts chapter 15 and I'll be reading from verse 1. So what's happened? Well, Paul and Barnabas have been in Antioch with the other Christians for some time, possibly about a year. And then this happens. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So, Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they travelled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild, and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things, things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath.
1: Well, thank you, Martin, and uh, good morning to everyone. I hope you're doing well on this beautiful day on the northern beaches. Uh, my name's Scott. I'm one of the ministers here. It'd be a great help to me if you could keep Acts chapter 15 open, or if you've closed it, open it up again. Well, I think we live in a graceless society a graceless society, and I don't mean that in an absolute sense, um, that there's no common courtesy, there's no acts of compassion, you hear no words of kindness. I, I don't even mean graceless in the sense of kind of cancel culture, if you've heard of that. It's kind of where if you vote for the wrong president, you don't take the vaccine, you stand for the wrong cause or you don't kneel for the right cause, you get cancelled, right? People will not even extend to you the basic courtesy of listening to you. You're just cancelled. Game over. Crawl back into the hole that you came out of. I don't mean graceless in that sense. I mean graceless in the sense that we don't operate on the basis of grace. That is, we cannot really cope with the idea of being given something without earning it outright, or at the very least, making some contribution towards it. I mean, think of a a thing as basic as being invited out for dinner. You might say, we should really have so-and-so over for dinner. Why? Well, because they had us over for dinner, remember? (laughs) You go, yeah, I remember, but that's such a weird motivation. (laughs) For me, I don't like being indebted to others, uh, if I can help it. If you don't let me pay for the coffees, I'll at least try to pay for my half. So even in basic interactions, we don't like being indebted to others. We can't really cope with the idea of grace. Now, grace is when someone does something good for you, and you don't deserve it, and you can't contribute towards it. In the Christian setting, grace comes in many forms, in life, in health, in knowledge of God, all those things that we don't really make a contribution towards. But it specifically means the free act of God to forgive us and bless us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, though we are undeserving sinners. Let me say that again. Write it down if you need to. Uh, Specifically, grace means the free act of God to forgive us, And bless us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, though we are undeserving sinners. And when Christians talk about grace, that's usually what we mean. And we would say that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We are saved by grace alone. But I'm just suggesting that even Christians struggle to live with grace. At times, we would prefer that Christian faith was graceless. We wish that we could contribute something towards our salvation, that we could bring something to the table, or at least pay for half, you know? So it may not surprise you to discover that the earliest Christians also struggled with grace. Some wanted to bring something of themselves to the deal, to make a contribution. Now today from Acts chapter 15, we're going to see why this is such a big deal and how it was all resolved. We are by this stage at the midway point in our Beyond series, which plots the spread of the gospel beyond Jerusalem in Acts chapters 10 to 19, as we consider proclaiming the good news of Jesus in Manly and beyond, as we've just heard about from Martin. And though the gospel has gone out from Jerusalem, first through the Apostle Peter, through Cornelius, then by unnamed disciples to Antioch, and then with the Apostle Paul and Barnabas around the northeastern Mediterranean basin, in Acts 15, the action returns to Jerusalem. So what is this gospel of grace? What threatens it? And why is it so important to them and of course to us as well? Well in today's passage we see there is a presenting issue, there is available evidence, there is a sensible solution and finally an important consideration. So issue, evidence, solution, consideration. Well what is the presenting issue? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. Let's trace it very briefly. In chapters 10 and 11 the Apostle Peter had to be convinced through a series of visions And an encounter with Cornelius, a Gentile that's a non-Jewish centurion in the Roman army, that God has granted repentance that leads to life, even to the Gentiles, not only to the Jews. Now, of course, Peter should have been prepared for that from his time with Jesus. But when it happened for the first time, it was nonetheless shocking to him. Then in Acts chapter 11, unnamed disciples told their neighbors about Jesus in the throbbing cosmopolitan hub of Antioch in Syria, and great numbers turned to the Lord that is great numbers of Greeks or Gentiles not only Jews and everybody seemed happy about this so the Apostle Paul and Barnabas headed off on a missionary journey from Antioch through Cyprus, Pisidia, Iconium, Lystra and Derbe before returning to Antioch where we read in Acts chapter 14 verse 27 which is on the same page that you've already got open these words on arriving there they gathered the church together And reported all that God had done through them, both the brickbats and the bouquets and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. But just two verses later, where we started with our reading today, Acts chapter 15 verse 1. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Paul and Barnabas are in Antioch, it's their church. But some guys from Judea, that's Jerusalem and surrounds, the very heart of the Jewish faith, arrive and start telling the Gentile Christians that belief is not enough. To be saved, they must also follow the Jewish laws, especially the ceremonial rite of circumcision. And so the presenting question really is, how will these Gentiles be welcomed into the community of God's people? Can you become a Christian without also becoming a Jew. Is this gospel of Christ just a reform movement within Judaism, or is it good news for the whole world? What must Gentiles, which includes us, by the way, do to be saved? Must we follow the law of Moses as well as believe the message of Jesus? And so you can see that what looks like a little geopolitical furphy from antiquity actually goes to the very heart of the Christian faith. Are we saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? Or do we need to make some kind of contribution to our salvation? Well, it's a big question. That's why in verse two, Paul and Barnabas come into sharp dispute with these Jewish Christians from Judea. That's why Paul and Barnabas and a few other good folks head up to Jerusalem to head office to see the other apostles and the elders of the Jerusalem church. Now trace it with me. En route, verse 3, through Phoenicia, to Lebanon, and Samaria, northern Israel, they share how the Gentiles have turned to Jesus and everyone is stoked. They get to Jerusalem and they tell the apostles and the elders and everyone how the Gentiles, Gentiles have turned to Jesus and everyone is stoked except there in verse 5. Some Christians, who also happen to belong to the Pharisees, basically repeat what we've already read in verse 1. The Gentiles, in verse 5, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. They're very happy for them to become Christians, just need them to become Jewish as well, and to follow the Old Testament law of Moses. Now I want you to to avoid the temptation to think of these Pharisees as cardboard cutout villains. After all, these guys have become Christians, turning and trusting in Jesus. But they deeply prized their Old Testaments and didn't think it should all be junked just because some Gentiles with their questionable religious and moral backgrounds also become Christians, likewise turning and trusting in Jesus. But look closely at verse 5. The must-be-circumcised there corresponds to the verse 1, you must be circumcised, or unless you're circumcised, you cannot be saved. This presenting issue about what to do with Gentile believers actually goes to the very heart of salvation, doesn't it? Well, I know uh, that some of you have been to court. (laughs) Um, Some as defendants, some as witnesses, some as jurors. Some are supporters or even curious onlookers if you've got lots of spare time on your hands. If you haven't been to court, you imagine it it goes like the courtroom scenes in American legal dramas on TV where everything is slick, the good-looking lawyers never stumble over their words, there's barely a break in proceedings, the back and forth is slick, witty, concise, almost entertaining. When you go to court, you realise that it's much more like the Australian comedy Rake ...than American legal dramas. It can be drawn out, messy... ...plenty of gaps, stumbles... ...going round in circles... ...generally not witty, slick and concise. Now, if you think about it for a moment... ...that is how you'd expect it to be... ...when dealing with all the available evidence. I mean, if the issue at hand was basically straightforward... ...you wouldn't be in court in the first place, would you? Now, in Acts 15 what's known as the Council of Jerusalem, there's not a lot of back and forth. We've just got a summary. But there is considerable available evidence. Firstly from the Apostle Peter, then from the Apostle Paul and Barnabas, before finishing with James the Just, the half-brother of Jesus, who wrote the New Testament letter of James, and who is by this stage the leader of the Jerusalem church. Now the conclusion of all the available evidence is very clear. You'll be happy to know all people Jew and Gentile alike are saved by grace alone through faith alone in Jesus alone. But let's see how they do it. How does the apostle Peter put it? After all, he is pretty much the first guy who experienced Gentile conversion. Well, Peter says two things mainly. Number one, have a look with me in verse seven. God chose that the Gentiles might believe in the message of Jesus. It's actually God's choice that these Gentiles are here and that they believe. But number two, Peter goes on to say, they're just like us. By which I mean they're just like Jewish Christians. So let's tease it out. Verse eight, read with me. God gave them, that's Gentile converts, the Holy Spirit, just like us. Verse nine, he purified their hearts by faith, not discriminating between us and them, which is another way of saying They're just like us. Verse 10, he goes on, Why burden them with the Old Testament law, which we've never been able to bear as Jews? Uh, In other words, he's saying they won't be able to keep it either, just like us. And in verse 11, Peter concludes strongly, like a barrister thumping his fist on the dock No, they are saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus, just like us. Except if you look closely, Peter puts it the other way around, as if to say, the simplicity of their salvation reminds us of the simplicity of ours. Following the law doesn't contribute to our salvation in Jesus. Moses doesn't complete what Jesus began. It never worked like that for us. It'd be dumb for us to force that upon these Gentiles. The gospel of grace is precisely that. A message of salvation for those who bring nothing other than humble repentance and true belief in Jesus. So that's Peter. The Apostle Paul and Barnabas, they only get a single verse there in verse 12, uh, as they bring their evidence. And it's really a summary verse, I guess, as the assembly listened intently to Barnabas and Paul, sharing about what they'd seen God do among the Gentiles through their ministry. And then in verses 13 to 18, James, who is the half-brother of Jesus, Not to be confused with Jesus' disciple, who was also called James, the brother of John. He'd been executed just a few chapters earlier. Well, James the just clears his throat and he wraps everything up. It seems like the other apostles recognized that their own salvation was due to the grace of Christ. Would James impose a different and more burdensome pattern of salvation upon Gentile believers? Well, the answer is, of course, no. James shows us, in fact, that Gentile faith fulfills the Old Testament prophecy. And he quotes from Amos 9, kind of an obscure little reference, which looks forward to hundreds of years into the future, to a time when the kingdom of Israel would be restored. That's the whole, I will rebuild David's fallen tent bit there in verse 16. But in fact, it's extended spiritually by this Gentile mission. By those who seek the Lord and bear his name from among the rest of mankind not on the basis of circumcision rituals but by a hearty and willing trust in Christ alone so there's the available evidence from Peter God chose the Gentiles to believe giving them the Holy Spirit purifying their hearts by faith just like us Jewish believers for Barnabas and Paul all the wonders that God did among the Gentiles through them from James the just the Old Testament prophecy which clearly predicted both Jews and Gentiles seeking God and bearing his name, seemingly on an equal footing, without mention of circumcision or following the Old Testament law. I uh, have in my desk at work something that cost a million dollars and has been on every NASA-manned space mission since debuting with the Apollo 7 mission in 1968 do you want to know what it is I hope you're ready for this it is the Fisher space pen the Fisher space pen and it's it's famous because it has this sealed and pressurized ink cartridge which means that it can write in just about any condition and on almost any surface it goes anywhere it writes anywhere Uh, underwater over grease In extreme temperatures, not that I've tested this, from minus 35 degrees to 120 degrees. You can write upside down or in gravity-free zones. Fisher Space Bend cost about a million dollars to develop. It has an estimated shelf life of 100 years. And it is famous because U.S. astronauts could use it to write in space. Impressive. You know, the Russians used pencils. They uh, didn't spend... Loads of money in development, they didn't test it over months and months and months. They just brought their pencils, <laughs> a bunch of 2Bs. Well, that's a simple solution, isn't it? As James sums up here, he supplies a simple solution to this presenting issue. How can the Gentiles be saved? Do they need to become Jews? Do they need to follow Moses and be circumcised and all the rest of it? For that matter, really, the question is, how, how is anybody saved? Well, the answer lies in the way verse 19 builds on verse 11. So let's read them together. It is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. We should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. In other words, they don't need to become Jewish in order to become Christians, for we are all saved by grace alone through the work of Jesus and we contribute nothing other than repentance and faith that is turning and trusting in him our cultural background our religious history our moral performance our community service our record of achievements our bible knowledge our church commitment our general politeness our all-round good guy or good girlness might be valuable in themselves in fact I'm sure they are but they do not contribute to our salvation in Jesus and if we think they do we are gravely mistaken, and in fact, if we trust in them, the truth is that we are not trusting in Jesus alone, are we? So, in our culture and in our hearts, deceptive little things that they are, which desperately feel like we've got to make a contribution, that we can't bring nothing to the table, that we've at least got to pay half. Let's be very clear the gospel message means we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone and this message brings life today just as it did back then but this message is in jeopardy today just as it was back then whenever we feel like we've got to add to complement supplement the grace of God in Christ Jesus to undeserving sinners like you and me now before we finish up uh, some of you will be asking about verses 20 And 21, an important consideration. And I'm glad you did, because as James concludes his speech, uh, and he repeats it in the letter that the Council of Jerusalem sends back to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, he concludes by telling the Gentiles to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, which is a big part of their background, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood, and you think, how random is that? I mean, what is going on? Is he saying, trust Jesus alone, we've just got four pretty weird requirements to do with meat, but other than that, uh, look, do what you want. You know, be greedy, steal, lie, it's okay, just don't eat meat sacrificed to idols, or that was strangled, or drink their blood. (laughs) Okay, so here's what I think is going on there. When you become a Christian, when you're saved by faith, however you want to put it, Through faith alone, in Christ alone, by His grace alone, your life changes. You're not only saved and in right standing with God, but you want to live for Him. And he helpfully details... Many of the ways that we do that with our bodies, our time, our money, our moods, our affections, our emotions, etc. Details many ways in the Bible. This Christian way of living, of course, is not what merits your salvation. It flows from that free act of God in Jesus. And the more you get to know God and love Him, the more you want to live for Him and with Him. But these requirements in Acts 15, food, sacrifice to idols, blood, meat of mangled animals, aren't so much about living for God as they're about Gentile Christians living with Jewish Christians, this this new, perhaps uneasy, alliance. It's about how they're going to get along, what happens when they sit down to dinner together. Because those things, meat, sacrifice to idols, blood, etc., they are prohibited in the Jewish Old Testament law in Leviticus. The Jewish Christians, especially the Pharisees, but possibly the majority of Jewish Christians, are likely to have strong attachments to those things. So the Jerusalem council is just saying, it is great. We are all saved by the great grace of God in Christ Jesus. But, but some of us Jewish brothers and sisters have got certain beliefs about food connected to our Old Testament law, and they're very hard for us to shake. And so Gentile converts, could you just be cool for our sakes and avoid any unnecessary conflicts, avoid searing our consciences about it so we can all get along at tea? And I think verse 21 is just appeasing any concerns that the introduction of the Gentile believers means that everyone is just going to forget about the law of Moses and just junk the Old Testament. It's as if James is effectively saying, mate, it is all we've ever been talking about and we're going to keep doing it. So don't worry about it. We're not going to junk it. And so that's the decision. And it seems to have settled the matter. It's written up, it's sent off to Antioch and it's received with great gladness and encouragement. Well, why wouldn't it be? John Stock puts it this way, this unanimous decision liberated the gospel from its Jewish swaddling clothes into being God's message for all humankind. Liberated the gospel from its Jewish swaddling clothes into being God's message for all humankind. And so friends, I'm really glad that this passage sits here at the midpoint in our series, it really is the perfect time to be reminded that the message of Jesus is a gospel of grace. Whatever we do for God, even our best efforts to reach out to others with His message is based upon and flows out of what He so freely did for us, because the Christian faith is always always, always about what God has done for us in Christ, not what we have done for Him. So easy to forget that in our heart of hearts, in our subconscious. When we live in a graceless world. So easy for us to slowly and subconsciously start trusting in our own contributions and performance. Rather than in Jesus' contribution and performance on our behalf. Now if you've never trusted in Jesus alone. In his great grace shown to us in his life, death and resurrection or you're not even sure that you have, well, boy, we would love to help you with that. They're our favorite conversations. So please get in touch with us via the online connect card. But for all of us, isn't this a great reminder that through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we are saved. It is a message for us, just as it is a message for others. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, forgive us for the times where we have either consciously or subconsciously trusted in our own contributions, our own performance, effectively thinking we can't not bring something to the table, that we've got to somehow make a contribution. And we recognize that we are saved through grace alone, by faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. And that is a message we need to know in the deep wellsprings of our heart as well as share with others in Manly and
0: Beyond. Pray that you would help us do both those things. In Jesus' name.
1: Amen.